0: So we are going to be continuing our series about revival, stronger than ever. Today we're going to be talking about the gift of wisdom. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be first in Second or First Kings, chapter four, and then Second Chronicles, chapter one. If you want to just kind of put your thumbs and, and fingers in those locations. And last week we began learning lessons about how to restart our lives. Um, after being shut down by a national crisis. If you were not here last week, I want to introduce you to our teacher for this series. It's a prophet by the name of Ezra. Ezra was the first spiritual leader of Israel after they returned from exile. And to review the situation that he was in, God's people, Israel and Judah, they had messed up big time. They had messed up so bad in going toward other gods and going toward other forms of worship, even going to child sacrifice and and just extremely lascivious styles of of worship, that God finally had Babylon come and put them in siege and conquer them and carry away the survivors to Babylon that was over 700 miles away. After 70 years of exile in Babylon, another nation called Medo-Persia conquers Babylon. And this king of that nation tells the Jews that were living in refugee camps around the city of Babylon, he tells them, you guys can go home. I want you to go home. I want you to go home. I want you to to start up your cities. I want you to start up your worship. I want you to go and be your own people again. King by the name of Cyrus. The only thing is, you can be your own people, but remember, you're under my rule. So they took him up on that. They took a 700-mile a trip back over to Israel, and um, that is where we are starting off with Ezra. Ezra was their first spiritual leader, and he compiled a selective history of the account of his people. We call that history the book of Chronicles. And in it, Ezra teaches a lot of different lessons from the lives of the kings of what to do and what not to do when you get a chance to do things over. Now last week we learned a lesson from David, and that lesson was about faith. We learned that God relents when we repent. And that repentance revol- involves remorse and, and, um, about our wrongs and turning toward what is right and giving something costly to God, our very hearts to Him. And today we're going to be learning a lesson from David's son, Solomon, about wisdom. So I'm going to open in prayer And we're going to get into this because I think it's going to really bless us this morning. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that you help us to take away all distractions. You help us to focus on your word. You help us to allow it to do its job of penetrating into joint and marrow and separating and, and all that stuff that Hebrew says it does, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, that it changes our mind and allows us to walk with you in a way that is pleasing to you and most effective for your kingdom. Lord God, I thank you and I ask this in your name. Amen. Now the Bible says that apart from Jesus Christ, Solomon was the wisest man in history. One of the smartest people that ever lived. And we read how wise Solomon was in 1 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to read a few excerpts from there. And just listen to it as it describes Solomon's wisdom. I'm going to start in 1 Kings 4.29. says that God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. His reputation extended to all the following nations. Verse 32, Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about the trees from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Emissary of all peoples sent by every king on earth who heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. That's pretty impressive when everyone else on the known earth at that time is sending emissaries to your country to listen to your king tell them um, facts and, and the wisdom that he knows. And even with all this wisdom, if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the life of Solomon, you know even with all this wisdom, you know he still did many things wrong. The book of First and Second Kings highlights many of those things. That's more of the, the honest history of, of exactly what went on during his life but Ezra wrote chronicles to highlight the positive side of Israel's kings just to encourage us to show us that restoration and revival is possible so Ezra is going to focus and talk about what Solomon did right and what Solomon did right benefited the entire nation and what he did started or what he did right started in the very first year of his reign now, let's let's look at the first year of his reign. Let's look at the exact circumstances of what was going on. Now, kings were not elected. Kings were not chosen. Kings were um, inherit. It was a heredity thing. The eldest son of the, of the king would typically become king when the father died. So Solomon is replacing his father, David. David is, is dying, and Solomon's getting ready to Get into the role. Now keep in mind, David was the greatest king in Israel's history. We're talking that he had huge, huge shoes to fill. And it had to be very intimidating for this, man, this young man to, to think about ascending into his dad's position. As he thought about how to begin his kingship, Solomon did something we might not have thought of doing. He went to Israel's holiest place, the tabernacle of God, which was on top of the holy mountain. He took with him a thousand sheep, goats, and cattle. He built a fire on an altar, and he made a thousand animal sacrifice to God. You think, well, I don't, I'm not sure what that means. Well, imagine a person today giving $100 million to a charity. That's kind of to put it in 2021 terms what that would be like. And if you're wondering, why, why would Solomon go and do that? That just seems like such an odd thing to do, let me read what happened as a result. In Second Chronicles 1, starting in verse seven, it says that that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, "Ask, what should I give you?" And Solomon said to God, "You have shown me great, or you have shown great and faithful love, To my father David, and you have made me king in his place. Lord God, let your promise to my father David now come true, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust on the earth. Verse 10 Now grant me wisdom and knowledge, so that I may lead these people, for who can judge this great people of yours? That word judge means lead. God said to Solomon, Since this was in your heart, and you have not requested riches, wealth, or glory, or for the life of those who hate you, you have not even requested a long life, but you have requested for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are to be given to you. I will also give you riches, wealth, and glory, unlike what was ever given to the kings who are before you, or who will be given to those after you. Now, if you think about it, that's a pretty big and awesome prayer and thing to ask God to bestow upon him. Now, why do I think that, that, that Solomon asking for wisdom is a, is a, is a monumental or, or fantastic thing? Because he was 14 years old when he became king. 14 years old, a young teenager. Now, I don't know about you, but I raised two teenagers. I, I, know, I know teenagers. If you give them a personal audience with God, how many of them are going to ask for wisdom? How many will ask for new PlayStation or Xbox? How many of them are going to ask for their favorite toy? Maybe they like to hunt or they want a new rifle. I mean, there, there is a thousand other things that a... 14-year-old will ask for, except for wisdom. I mean, he could have just simply asked, God, yeah, I want to be famous. I want money. I want fame. I want property. But instead, he asked God to give him wisdom. I mean, think about where Solomon was. Have you ever been put in a situation like this? All of a sudden, people are looking to you for guidance. He went from being a prince to to king as soon as David took his last breath. You know, this never happens when you're at your best, does it? If somebody calls you and needs something, is it like when you're at your best and you're at your most holy, you just got done praying and worshiping? Or is it usually when you're tired, you're crabby, you're stressed out, and then somebody calls you and asks you for one more thing? Well, this kind of has, has to be where Solomon was right now. He's mourning his father. He knows that his older brothers are all jockeying for position. By the way, Solomon... I don't know if you know this, but Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. He wasn't even technically part of the royal family, except that David eventually married her after that whole mess that that he went through with her. But as far as being like the firstborn with the first wives, he was the outcast. He was kind of the person that was a footnote or a mistake of of what happened with with, uh, David's adultery with Bathsheba. He knows that his brothers, they're just jockeying for this position. He knows also that he can't give it up. Because in ancient times, the first thing the king would do when he became king is remove any threat to his throne. So if Absalom gives it, if, or, any, or Abnon or any of these other guys get it, he's dead. They're going to kill him as, as a, to make sure that they can keep that throne. So Solomon is probably feeling pretty small and helpless. He knows that his ability and claim to to hold this kingship is tenuous at best. Have you ever been assigned a big task? Or shoved suddenly into a place of responsibility or leadership? You ever wondered if God has called you to something, if you could actually do what he's asked you to do? If, you, if so, you know exactly what Solomon was feeling that day. I mean, suddenly he finds himself responsible and caring for four million people or two million people. Since this was a huge assignment, he makes the biggest sacrifice he can imagine. One after another, a thousand animals are slaughtered and hoisted on that altar. A thousand animals. Let's talk about the significance of that offering. In the Old Testament, there are several different kinds of offerings. One of them is called a fellowship offering. Or the fellowship offering, you roasted part of the animal um, and you uh, roasted another part for yourself and half of it you gave to God, half of it you gave to yourself and you would actually have a meal with God in His presence in the temple. That was a fellowship offering. Another type of offering was a burnt offering. With a burnt offering, you got nothing. You gave the whole animal to the priest. It got burned up. God got it all. Everything's consumed. Symbolizing that you're giving everything to God. Solomon's offering was that burnt offering. Solomon was saying, God, all I have is yours. And all I am is yours. For 1,000 times, he just kept repeating that. All I am is yours. All I have is yours. All I am is yours, God. All I have is yours. And that evening, God came to him and asked Solomon, What should I give you? You've given me your best gift. Now what do you want from me? Solomon answers in all humility. He said, I only want one thing, Lord. I want the wisdom to be able to fulfill the calling that you have given me. And it was a perfect response. Just about everybody here has been a parent, so you know what it's like when your son or your daughter do the right thing. Even in the midst of really bad circumstances, you feel that, that swelling in your heart of pride and, 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 and just admiration that, that they are turning out well. Now imagine God's heart when he heard Solomon um, express this, this need in this moment. And without hesitation, our gracious God said, Solomon, since you asked me for something that will benefit others and not for things that will benefit you, I'm going to give you what you asked for and I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to shower you with riches and wealth and glory, unlike any other king before you. Ezra, who's telling us this story, is teaching us a lesson about rebooting our lives. He's saying that the best way to have a fulfilled life is to follow God's purpose for your life. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things you're hoping for will be added to you as well. In 1996, when I first became a paramedic, I used to love to go to work. I used to love to work. In fact, I'd often work 48 to 72 hours in a row just because I I loved my job so much. I loved being a paramedic. And I was getting all kinds of experience. I was racking up the the people I knew and, and was looking at maybe getting different jobs. I was thinking maybe... Uh, becoming a uh, helicopter paramedic, um, going and doing that, or one of my partners has, was applying to go into physician's assistance school, and he wanted me to come with him. And I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, that would be kind of cool, being a PA, you know, and make you know, well over $100,000 a year and all that. that. I could do that. But then in the spring of 1999, I had a, a rare Sunday off, because I worked a lot, and I'm sitting in church and I'm listening to the message when I received my call to the ministry. I thought God, I thought it was the pepperoni from last night. It wasn't God's voice because there's no way with my past that God could be calling me into the ministry. I'm the last person that should ever step behind a pulpit. Yet God's call repeated itself. And then he reminded me of the scripture that he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And that was the ultimate foolish thing. So I put aside my dreams and I started in a new direction. And less than a year later, because there's a huge fight with the pastor of that church, suddenly I was thrust into being the interim pastor with less than a year of education and experience. That was a baptism in fire. But you know what? As tough as that was on me, as tough as that was on my family, I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I can tell you it wasn't easy. It was a constant fight. Calls at work, calls when I was off, calls, I mean, just day and night. So it was a big church. It, was, it started off at 800 people, and I, but I still had to work. And it was just gut-wrenching for everything. But I can tell you this, that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how heavy the weight that's put upon you, having the knowledge that you're in the will of God is everything it means everything to you and it was a completely new start to me and just like me on the day of Solomon's sacrifice he was starting his life over one moment he was a prince he doesn't have any responsibilities he has all the luxuries he has all the privilege he has all the possessions he's a prince he doesn't have to worry about anything next moment he's a king Kings must lead. So Solomon asked for this incredible thing called wisdom. Now wisdom isn't just simple knowledge. Wisdom isn't like those books you saw during the announcement slide. That's, That's not wisdom, that's knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do with those facts and figures and principles. Wisdom is about application. It's about knowing what to do in every situation and when to do it. And I'd encourage you to continue your reading about Solomon. Read through the next eight chapters, you'll discover some incredible things that happen as a result of the wisdom that God gave Solomon. For instance, right here in chapter 1, verse 14, Ezra tells us that Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, that he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. And those numbers may not mean that much to us in the 21st century, but 1,400 chariots was a huge amount of chariots for just a little small nation like Israel. Keep in mind that the greatest superpower on earth could only muster 600 chariots to chase after the children of Israel when they left Egypt. Solomon had more than double that. Solomon knew that if God blessed his country, he's going to need a strong military to defend it. And the next verse says that the king made silver and gold as common as in Jerusalem as stones and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Those two woods were the, the best woods of their time during that point. And the, the big idea there is that he knew how to generate wealth. He kn- not only generated it, but he knew how to help other people generate it so all his people were taken care of. Then chapter 2 says that Solomon decided to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So he assigned 70,000 men as porters, 80,000 men as stonecutters in the mountains, and 3,600 supervisors over them. Solomon knew the importance of having a place for the people to worship God. You see that same thing with Ezra. That that was his first priority when they came back, was to build that temple for God. Solomon knew he had to assign people and put people in charge, have a, a whole system, a whole administration to to oversee this. Solomon's wisdom endowed Israel with the great, the greatest, most incredible temple of worship in the world at that time, in the known world. In chapter 3 through... Eight describes how Solomon built that temple, how he fortified the cities of Israel, how he settled people in those cities so that everyone was protected, everyone prospered, and everyone was happy. If you flip forward to chapter nine, you'll see this description in verse thirteen: the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was twenty-five tons. Beside what he, beside what was brought by Mer. And traders, all the Arabian kings and governors of the land also bought gold and silver to Solomon. And all the point to all this that why I'm showing you all this is wisdom is a great gift. Israel experienced fantastic blessings as a result of Solomon's wisdom. It became the wealthiest nation in the world at that time. Israel's people enjoyed safety on all their borders. There were no wars. There was nobody who dared come against them. And all the world experienced blessing as a result of Solomon's prayer. Solomon was also wise enough to know that his wisdom couldn't accomplish everything. So this really, really wise man spent some serious time in prayer. Chapter 7 contains God's response to Solomon's prayer. This response may be one of the most famous responses to prayer in all the Bible. Many of you have heard it. We've used it quite often during our solemn assemblies. But let me read it to you, and you'll probably recognize it. It's in 2 Chronicles 7, starting in verse 12. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place, this new temple, for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or I send the pestilence on my people, and my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now most of us, or if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably memorized this in one uh, version or another. I'm going to break this down. It says, If my people who are called by my name will number one, humble themselves, number two, pray, number three, seek my face, And number four, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And pro tip when you're reading the Bible, if you read a passage of scripture and you see these words, if and then, that's a conditional promise of God. It means that there's a responsibility on our side that we have to do before something else happens. And in this case, when you humble yourself, you admit that you're not the center of the universe. You're not even that big. And you're not God. You're saying, God, I understand. I'm a creation. You are the creator. You are God. When you pray, you talk to God about your hopes, your fears, your dreams. Your dreams you empty yourself before Him and and share fellowship with Him. Number three, when you seek God's face, you think about Him and try to do everything in your day with Him so that His face, His thoughts, His spirit are always with you, always guiding you, always empowering you. And number four, and turn from your wicked ways. And let me tell you, there's a hidden meaning here in Hebrew. That you may never have heard about before. May not, it's going to change everything when you understand exactly what he is saying here. It may, let, me, let me, okay, everybody ready? This is exactly what it means. Exactly what it says Turn from your wicked ways. There is no equivocation in the Hebrew with that. It is a direct command, it's very black and white. It means not to offer excuses and say, well, everyone's doing it. Or, it's not that bad. It means to turn from those things that you know are wrong and to do the right thing. These are the ifs that need to be done before God releases the then, the promise to heal our land. And it's the key to personal health and healing. It's a key to healing America. It's a key to revival. Remember, humble yourself, pray, seek God's face, turn from your wicked ways. And you know what? who needs to do that in order for God to heal our land? Are we talking about Antifa? Are we talking about BLM, the Proud Boys, Trump supporters, Biden supporters, Democrats, Republicans? Are we talking about them? No, God says, if my people, We don't need to call other people to turn from their wicked ways because sinners are always going to be sinners. God has never, ever in the Bible done something as a result of of people sinning. It's always been when people who initially belonged to him turned from him and did something wicked. He always has moved on the actions of his people, the church. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're the ones that determine God's actions on this earth. Jesus had a best friend on earth, and he wants to say something to us this morning. Jesus' best friend was a guy named Peter. And he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, he said, For the time is come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God always moves with his, with his people. And if it begins with us, what shall be the end of them who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, you and I, the church in America, we hold the key. We hold the key. Do we want God to heal our land or we just want to let it continue to slide into darkness? So how do we apply this? How do we live this? First thing we do, is we do what Solomon did. We make a burnt offering. I'm not talking literally, I'm not talking about going out to a farmer and buying a goat or a calf or, or anything and building a big bonfire in the backyard. It might be, get the police called on you. I'm talking about building an altar in your heart. Climbing up on it, offering yourself, like Solomon did a thousand times to God, until it just sinks into the greatest depths of your soul. Give him all your possessions. Give him your position. Say, God, it is all yours. Use it as you will. The second thing we can do to live this is ask God for wisdom. The book of James says that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. That's a promise within the Bible. God, give me wisdom. It's answered. He'll give you wisdom. You just have to be willing to accept it. And once you've asked for wisdom, continue to grow in wisdom. Proverbs is a great place to start. That's how you pursue wisdom. By reading the wisdom literature in the Bible. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes especially. Proverbs says of itself, in the first couple verses of the book of Proverbs, it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for gaining for understanding insightful sayings for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness justice and integrity for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced knowledge and discretion to a young man let a wise man or let a wise person listen and increase learning and let a discerning person obtain guidance now there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Most days or most months have 30 to 31 days in them. That means you could read the whole book in one month by reading one chapter a day. Highly recommended that you do that. Read a chapter of Proverbs a day as part of your Bible reading. Billy Graham did that for 70 years of his life, and and God used him, I think. <laughs> pretty pretty big, right? You'll grow in wisdom. So if we're able to do that, if we're able to make that burnt offering, if we're able to ask for wisdom and pursue wisdom, then we'll be able to walk in wisdom. Proverbs 13.20 says, The one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. What this means is exactly what we're doing right now, meeting together. Have Christian friends. I'm not saying you can't have non-Christian friends. It's a good idea to have non-Christian friends. But don't allow them to guide your life. Allow your church family to do that. Because we want the best for you. We want to make sure that when you step into God's kingdom, you hear the words that we all yearn to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's all rise.